energy transition is complex and it can be hard to know where to turn for information. We're all moving towards a cleaner future, but how do we get there? What are we gonna find along the way? I'm Dr. Liz Dennett and you're listening to Horizons, a podcast from Wood Mackenzie that explores the world of tomorrow. If you're a leader, a decision maker, or someone who just has a stake in the future of energy and natural resources, then join us right here for insights, bold forecasts, and new perspectives. Plastic is the miracle material of the modern world. Production has surged more than a thousand percent over the past 50 years, thanks to its near infinite flexibility as a material. 380 million tons of plastic are produced each year. The power of plastic drives our consumer decisions in retail, packaging, and apparel. However, in the same way we can't sustain ourselves on a diet of junk food, the planet can't survive with its arteries clogged by a blanket of materials that are near impervious to breakdown. Plastic demand is rising, predicted to increase 90% by 2050, and that increase is going to result with us struggling to achieve net zero targets. That said, transformation is possible. Renovations across the entire value chain, from feedstocks to how and where we consume plastics and manage them after use, could deliver a healthier plastics chain and a viable environmental footprint. In this episode of the Horizons podcast, we explore the efforts to create a sustainable value chain, the issues with biodegradability, and the new materials that hinder recycling efforts. I'll be joined by our expert guests, as always, to analyze it all, and we'll get the final word from our chief analyst, Simon Flowers, at the end of the show. Our planet needs plastic surgery, and it's time for the industry to go under the knife. This is episode three of Horizons. Let's get into it. So with that, it's truly my pleasure to introduce two dynamic guests who will help us understand the sometimes depressing topic of plastic. First up, joining me is Dr. Lars Berger, Vice President of Brand Owner Management for Renewable Polymers and Chemicals at Nest Corporation. Nest is the world's largest producer of renewable diesel and renewable jet fuel, refined from waste and residuals, introducing renewable solutions to the polymers and chemicals industries. All right, Dr. Berger, thank you so much for joining me today. So can you give me the high-level overview of what exactly you do? Yeah, thank you. And first, please, if you could call me Lars, it would be really easier and nicer. Although I'm German, not sticking to the to the doctor. Um, so what are we doing? In the end, uh, we are doing nothing else but, but changing, helping to change the industry because the chemical industry is depending on carbon. And uh, we will help them, or we, are, we already help them to just change it away from fossil, because the actual issue we talk about is, is, is fossil and fossil feedstocks. And have you always been passionate about trying to improve this industry? Absolutely. I mean, I've been doing this more than, more than 10 years now, in various functions in the former company and now, and it's always about the same topic. There is, there is a need for chemistry and polymers, although it always sounds a bit strange. But there is a need, definitely. And, and uh, the only thing we need to do is really to make it resource efficient, not to destroy the planet by what we do, but rather help and be part of the solution. So I'm very passionate about that, yes. Awesome. And you can also call me Liz. You do not have to call me Dr. Dennett or Dr. Liz. That's um, very I, kind of you, Dr. Liz. <laughs> I, I only say that when I'm trying to make a point or, or someone, I really, really need to play that card. <laughs> And today we also have the pleasure of being joined by Guy Bailey, head of chemicals markets research at Wood Mackenzie. Guy, what exactly do you do with your day job with that impressive title? Hi, Liz. Great, great to be here and join you and Lars. 
so the Wood McKenzie Chemicals team help um, our clients who range from the very top of the value chain to the consumer companies and the waste companies who are tracking plastic. We help them understand what's happening to all of those markets as they interact both in the short term, uh, sort of you know, riding through the, the challenging markets we're looking at today, but also looking more strategically into the longer term. So for the next well, 30 years, as we deal with the challenges that we're going to touch on today. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation. So plastics are typically seen as something bad, something filling landfills and creating islands in the ocean. I know as a child of the 80s, I still pounce into action whenever I'm going for a walk and see those plastic six-pack holders for soda. Like I go full Hulk mode. I cut them and tear them thinking I'm saving sea turtles somewhere in the wild. But the reality is that plastic is a necessity of the modern world, and it actually has a huge net positive into our modern lives, right? Yeah, absolutely. I would agree, Liz. When we think about plastic, we think exactly about this, about sea turtles which get stuck, or we uh, think about the plastic waste. And, and, and it's true. We need to take care of that problem, 100% for sure. And it's actually, if you see that, it's already a waste of resources because you see that uh, this plastic, which is floating around somewhere, could have been used as a new feedstock for something. So it's really it's really crazy in all senses. On the other hand side, um, let's don't forget that this plastic or polymers actually are used everywhere. If you just look around us, they are everywhere. And, and if you think about your functional clothes, as an example, if you go for hiking or something, you will probably not want to miss that anymore. Um, or also just now in Corona times, I mean, who wants to go to a hospital without some hygienic standards based on plastics? So definitely it's a big part of, of the well-being of people these days to have these. But obviously we've learned that we've, we've done something wrong in the past because um, there is these consequences which you've been talking about. Yeah, I, I completely agree, Lars. I think if we if we look at the growth of plastics over the last 50 years. I think it's grown by a thousand or more than a thousand percent that the use of plastics that's you know, up to four times faster, I think, than, than say metals usage. And, and that's because plastics have got these amazing properties that make them so useful for everything we do. They're, they're, they're versatile, uh, they're very scalable, and they're pretty cheap compared to the alternatives. And you know, the examples you've given there are, are exactly right. If we didn't have plastics, the, the thought of how we'd have created PPE, uh, personal protective equipment, it would have had to wait for the cotton crop to grow. It's, it's, it's mind-boggling. So you know, it, it, plastic has a, a hugely important role to play in, in, in life today. And if we want to deliver the energy transition, you know, my colleagues in the metals team are often talking about how the energy transition is a metal story. Well, it's also a plastic story. You, you can't have electric vehicles without a lot of plastic in them, both from a lightweighting perspective, but also from a, a technical properties perspective. So it's it's a really important material and it's also if we if we if we sort of park the turtles for a little bit and we won't do that for for the rest of the conversation i'm sure but other than the waste problem environmentally it generally tends to be a lot better than the alternatives you know it's, it's a lot less carbon intense than aluminium or glass uh, or indeed even a lot of paper products when you look at how much paper you need to to, to meet sort of plastics properties so, so i don't want to downplay the problems and i'm sure we're going to discuss them but the reason that plastic is sort of so integral to our lives is because it's a great material I think that's absolutely a key point too. And I think this sometimes myopic view of one thing or the other, trying to figure out what the trade-off is when the reality is it's so much more nuanced than that. So I'm really looking forward to discussing what some of these trade-offs are, what some of the, the nuances are here. In terms of the plastic and chemicals industry as a whole, they've recognized that there is a problem with some of these aspects and they've made progress pouring attention and capital into partnerships and technologies that are really required to reduce the broad environmental footprint. So what do you see as some of the trends and then are they going to make a difference? And then I guess even more broadly, how do we define 
make a difference if we want to be really pragmatic about it. I would like to comment first maybe on what Guy said. Yes, it's a cheap solution, but obviously this is not the full picture of it because obviously what we've been doing the past uh, one or two generations is to use a very cheap feedstock, but that was only cheap because it was not internalizing the effects it had on the environment. So that is part of the story as well, I think. Um, and that is something which is, which is, of course, also an issue because it is maybe have been too cheap to a certain degree. However, as we mentioned, it was important to build the wealth the well-being of, 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 of all people on the planet, I can say, or many of those. But now we need to take the um, consequences into account. And coming back to your question, I would say, yes, it has been recognized, finally. So it's really it's a really incredible change, which, is, which we can observe just in the past two, three years, I would say. Really, if you talk to the major chemical players, let's say three years ago, with some exceptions, most of them would not be able to describe the problem or would recognize the problem but would rather ask and search for a way to continue what they've been doing. And now you really see fundamental changes to basically all the large players which have laid out their own sustainability agendas. And I think the biggest trend, what I would dare to say, is really that, that uh, it's been recognized now that it's not only one solution which will help the whole problem, so it's not only having bio-based solutions as an opposite to fossil or only recycling. It's I think it's very clear now that you need a lot of a bunch of solutions, and that is recognized now. The first time I think that's really something new, and this will make a change. I'm hundred percent sure. Yeah, absolutely. That that point about the speed of change, I think, is is tremendously important. You know, the industry you know, continues to I think get a bad rap in some quarters. And it's completely the case that you know, maybe up to up to five years ago, the industry was nowhere on this at all. I would say maybe three years ago, it started to really get its act together on the plastic waste side of things. I'd say in the last two years, the change in the last two years, and even in this year on carbon and, and the carbon footprint side of things is, is, is monumental. It's, it's, it's completely changing the way these businesses are thinking about their futures. In terms of the sort of trends they're looking at, we, we did a bit of a survey of the top 30 chemicals companies uh, in the polymer chains, the plastics chains. They've got revenues of about 700 billion a year. So they're pretty big, pretty Ooh. big companies when you sort of, sort of add them all together. And across those companies, sort of about six out of 10 uh, are committed to moving to lower carbon power and heat to reduce emissions in their production, about the same to find production efficiencies. 50% have got commitments to boost circularity, whatever that might mean. There's different formats there. 30% want to look at carbon capture um, and about a quarter want to look at low carbon or alternative feedstocks. So that list, I think, is pretty intuitive. You know, you start with the easier ones to do. It's it's easier to buy low carbon power if it's available. That's something you just, you've got to spend some money to do it, but it's easy to do. And you work down towards those harder things. You know, some, some of that alternative feedstock sourcing means completely reconfiguring your business. So it is it is hard to do. You can't just spin on a dime and do that. I guess to the second part of your question is, does that make a difference? Will that make the difference? I mean, I think it's very encouraging that these are the biggest companies. Um, you know, the, the, the plastic chain is very fragmented you know, as, you, as you sort of work your way through it. And if you've got the big guys at the top and you've got the consumer brands at the bottom, both leading the charge, I think that's really helpful to kind of coordinate activity across the sector. That said, I think in our survey of, of, of the commitments of those companies, I think we, we found two things. So, so one is that no company's got commitments across the board of those, those areas we looked at. And a quarter of them only had sort of a commitment to you know, a maximum of one. So I think we can do more on the ambition. I think we can push that ambition further. I think we will see that ambition going further as these companies continue in, to internalize what they need to do. And then secondly, quite a lot of detail is probably missing, or certainly pub public detail is missing around how they're actually going to deliver the changes they're committing to. So yeah, I think 
it's a welcome start, but we need to see a lot more on the ambition side and a lot more in particular on the detail side to give us confidence that we're really going to bend the curve on the environmental impact of the, of the industry. People familiar with the topic, they told you hear a lot about scope one, two, three. So um, to a certain degree, um, companies are anyway taking care of that they don't use too much energy because it's natural because it's cost saving. So that is something which has been there and is more and more explicit, I would say. I think the, the big change also, which we see now in the trend is also that scope three. So that is what do I hand over with my products in terms of uh, carbon footprint and environmental footprint is much more in the focus. And that is something which is new, which is also taking efforts. As you said, the people need to change really the work, the way they work. They also need to learn new marketing skills as well. But on the other side, it's, it's really also that, that at least we have seen that from Nestle. We've been focusing very much on the what we call sustainability specifiers. So those are the ones in the downstream, which are brand owners or brand houses. There is an example of, of a Unilever who reaches more than 2 billion people per day uh, with their goods. So that, if you talk about impact, that is impact. And when such a company says, well, we need to change away from fossil, we need to convert all our products in the home care business at least, away from, from fossil sources into renewable sources, one or the other way, then this is something that needs to be served. And that's exactly what we're doing, trying to help them to get it going. And the chemical companies, which are intermediates in between the raw material matrices and these, have understood this as well. It's a necessity now to do that. And that all is linked to, coming back to the big picture, actually to the emission gap, which is opening wider every day, despite Paris agreements and conferences in Glasgow and elsewhere, actually... If you look into policy, policy measures as they are really in place today, actually the gap towards what we can allow ourselves is it's actually widening. So we need to do a lot of things. And that means the urgency is extremely high because by 2030, there will be points of no return. And 2030 is in chemical industries terms tomorrow or almost today. Going to the other side of that, what can the individual consumer do? I know my dad has recently been living with me. I took him to the grocery store. We were trying to figure out what type of yogurt he wants to eat. There was a bunch in plastic. There was a bunch in glass. There were big sizes, small sizes, Lars. I know you and I were talking about this. What can the lonely individual consumer do to feel like they are helping move this in the right direction with the power of their dollar and their choices? Or is there nothing they can do? Well, um, <laughs> of course, they could uh, probably earn some master degrees in packaging and in, in every other um, science you need in order to be able to judge what is the right choice to make. And make even their own then yogurt? You can't because even the experts can't. <laughs> no, but in reality, I mean, it's a very difficult question because on the one hand side, it's very clear that, that of course, we as consumers are the, the, we are influencing both the brand owners and the specifiers and also governments. So by this, we, of course, have the power of the dollar, if you say so. On the other hand side, I would say it's also a bit an unfair burden, which is put onto, onto individuals, because how can you really go to the supermarket and then look at all the yogurts or whatever, and then make the choice? And what, who tells you that a 100 gram CO2 saving, but higher water footprint is better than uh, whatever, 50 uh, gram saving versus a better water footprint or so? So this is too complicated. You cannot put this burden onto people alone. So I think it's very clear. There's, there's, a, there's a part we want to reduce what we do. Re resource consumption reduction is for sure always right. There's nothing wrong about this. But then also it needs governments and it needs also other players to help that. 
because some of the real big choices cannot be done by individuals. I mean, just by your personal choice, there will not be a, a hydrogen grid being installed in the US to help the, the um, renewable energy um, build up. So it's a mix of both. Awareness is important, but it should, it's not fair to put all the burden only on the individuals. But by acting as political players, we can, of course, influence it. Yeah, I, I hate to agree with everything that Lars is saying. Uh, I'll, I'll try and find some disagreement <laughs> later on, but but it, I think that's totally right. There's, you know, a, this is a systemic issue, and and an individual cannot resolve on their own a systemic issue. But if we think about the sort of the the, the hierarchy of waste, you can you can think about the bits where uh, an individual, you as an individual consumer, can have more of an impact. Um, so if we think about the hierarchy of waste, you start by trying to reduce. If you cannot use something in the in in, in the first, sometimes sometimes even refuse. So. Don't have the thing in, in your example of yogurts, uh, Liz. You know, but just buy one yogurt, don't get the second one. Maybe it's a bit, a bit, a bit trivial, but if, you, if everyone does that, it, it adds up. But yeah, trying trying to have less less things uh, where you don't need them is probably a good thing. That's a, a big societal issue to unpack. Reusing then is is the next thing you can do. So um, you know, can you can you make that that make that sweater last longer? Can you can you can it, can it eke out? You know, can you wear it more times and and can it live twice as long? So you don't need to buy another jumper or other clothing items to to replace it. That can have a big impact. We ran in our model. We ran a scenario where we instituted sort of basically a, a framework where we looked at reuse. Um, elimination or substitution impacts in in the packaging, apparel, and and hospitality sectors. And by 2050, we reduced demand in those sectors by about 26%, I think it was, about about a quarter. And that's sort of basically looking at the industry leaders today and assuming that the rest of the world catches up with what those brands are saying they'd like to achieve. So a quarter of demand in those sectors is about 13% of total plastic demand. And that's 90 million tons. So that's that's non-trivial, actually. And that is driven by individuals choosing to, to, to sort of take actions. But once you get beyond that, you're starting to get into you know, issues where where governments and the, the the industry themselves really need to to address the the impacts of production. So um, it sounds like there's a lot of things we can do, but at the same time, there are very few things we can do as individual consumers. It should, I think, uh, should not sound to <laughs> kind of. You said that you don't want to have depressive messages, and that's all by that. There is really a lot of choices we can make. Um, but also, it's it's also taking a little bit of pressure away from us. There's bigger levers which we also need to just be cautious about, and then then don't get distracted. I mean, the carbon footprint individual carbon footprint calculator was uh, invented by a major oil company, <laughs> not by an NGO. So that is probably a hint to 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 what we talk about. Tying this back to one of the topics we talked about a few questions ago, what are the drivers that are really encouraging plastics companies to be more sustainable as a whole? What's causing them to look at where their energy sources are coming from or how they can be more recyclable or have more carbon neutral feedstocks? Where is that coming from? I would say there's multiple motives for that. I mean, on the one hand side, there is really a um, very clear the, the urgency um, to tackle the climate problem specifically. Um, that is what the main focus is on, I think. We talk about waste plastic then a little bit later. But the, the main topic is climate change, and that is very clear. The urgency is so high, as mentioned, 2030 is a point of no return, so we have to have done something. So then there's, of course, this is a reason if you want to... <laughs> If you want to keep the planet safe, yeah, and that's, for example, Nesta, we have our purposes creating a healthier planet for children even, not just keeping it as it is. So that's a quite hefty purpose. But we are living up to that. But um, so that is one one thing. So really trying to save the world. The other one is simply also from a business point of view, 
um, the next generation of consumers is is just not uh, seeing this as a differentiation factor anymore. It's it's a it's a hygiene factor, as you say in marketing. So it's really something that just is a license to operate. You will not be allowed to do something. If you look into as you talk about drivers, I mean, uh, interesting drivers coming also from the financial investment side. So talking about a, a BlackRock, which is the largest investor on this globe, um, who has pointed out that they will not invest into companies which are not aware of their sustainability risks because they will simply not be there anymore and their investment um, horizon is like 30 years or so. So it's not something which is it's just, a, you know, it's, it's really also a commercial topic. Um, so that's very clear. There's an interesting study of uh, the um, Potsdam Institute for Climate Change uh, research, which which um, has been kind of meta-study-wise um, looking into um, how much does it cost to mitigate climate change and how much does, how much does uh, climate change cost. And there's obviously a break-even point, and this is funny more or less in the, in the area of two degrees um, warming. So that means after that, point, the, uh, the cost of the climate change are higher than the cost to mitigate it. So even from a purely economic, without anything else point of view, it just makes sense to do the measures. Beside that, <laughs> of course, all the other points are, are in there. Well, I think that's a great group of stakeholders that, that, that Lars has, has touched on there. The only one I'd add to that, actually, which I think is, is, is also an important one, actually, is, is employees. Um, you know, the, the employees of these companies don't want to do bad things, right? They, they also look at pictures of turtles with, with plastic bags in their stomachs and you know, are appalled by it. So, you know, these companies also need to adapt to, to, to that stakeholder group as well. But otherwise, absolutely right. Consumers, governments you know, um, and investors, those are the key, key groups that the, the companies need to, need to adapt to. Because if they don't adapt, the, the change will happen too them and there's nothing worse than than having change forced upon you so exactly employers um, and and employer branding in that sense so because actually nesta we we can yeah we can sing a song of that because we've been elected to one of the most sustainable companies in the world and have a very clear purpose so purpose driven is one of the examples we we are really proud of that because you can wake up 98 uh, percent of the of the employees and they would all be able to repeat the purpose and that is really what we see that's why we are able to to hire people which all want to be on the same quest, so to say, the quest on, on the same, um, yeah, we are, we are fighting for the same mission, so to say. And that is so much more powerful because it makes sense. People want to have purpose in their life. Absolutely. And I know for me, one of the reasons that I joined the team at Woodmac is because we're helping transform how we power the planet and to be able to contribute to how the energy industry is looking at its entire end-to-end value chain and contribute data to that is such a rallying cry. I really appreciate all of these data points because it reframes too that sometimes you can get lost in the role of the individual consumer feeling powerless, but it's absolutely not that. And it's not just the employers, not just the companies, not just the governments, not just the people that get together at COP26. It really does sound like it's a critical mass right now that is being fueled by the data, looking at the data points, looking at where we are to see how we can sustainably come together because there's no business like having a future to do business in. You're listening to episode three of Horizons with me, Dr. Liz Dennett, Dr. Lars Berger, and Guy Bailey. We're at the halfway point of the discussion now, so we're going to hand it over to Nina Bedrick for this edition of Making Waves. This is the section of the show where we shine the spotlight on people in the energy industry who are doing innovative and revolutionary work. Today, Nina speaks to Abigail Ross Hopper, 
president and CEO of the Solar Energy Industries Association. Over to you, Nina. Hi, I'm Nina Badrek, a data analyst at Wood McKenzie, and this is Making Waves. In each edition of the Horizons podcast, I'll shine the spotlight on those in the industry who are doing exceptional and revolutionary work. I'll be talking to the brightest talents in the energy sector, getting insight into their work and how they see the future of our industry. This week, I'm talking to Abigail Hopper, president and CEO at Solar Energy Industries Association. Prior to leading the Solar Energy Industries Association, Abby was director of the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, overseeing activity for both fossil fuel and renewable energy generation. Abby, welcome. Tell us a little bit about what you do. Hey, Nina. It's good to chat with you. And um, thank you so much for the invitation to participate. You got the title right. I am the CEO of SIA, the National Trade Association for the Solar and Solar Plus Storage Industry. What do I do on a daily basis? If you ask my children, they would say, talk on the phone and look at the computer. (laughs) But uh, what I really do is sort of try to see what barriers there are to greater solar adoption and deployment and then get rid of them so that companies and businesses can continue to deploy as quickly as possible. And what sort of barriers are you seeing now? And what challenges are you facing at this moment in time? Yeah, at this moment in time, I would say um, our greatest challenge is uncertainty, right? It is, I you know, prior in my prior lives, I have represented um, as a lawyer, represented private clients and businesses need certainty in order to figure out how to deploy capital and technology. Um, and so we're kind of in the in a huge mix of uncertainty at the moment. As as we are talking today, it's still unclear exactly what's going to happen in Congress. And so the sort of certainty around tax credits and those sorts of things is up in the air. Um, we are fighting trade battles on a number of fronts. That's creating a great deal of uncertainty in our industry about what future supply and prices will be. And then obviously there's a greater, greater uh, socioeconomic challenge that all of us are facing around supply chain and inflation and, and those things. And so some of it is solar specific, some of it is not, but kind of all, all taken together, it is a bit of a challenge for our industry at a time when we're also growing rapidly and we can talk about all of that excitement as well. So do you see the identity of the industry changing in the, in the future? In an exciting way, I'm assuming. Or I do. I think. Uh, I think we're still at the point where we, we're getting to define our identity, right? I think our identity was a little bit different at the at the genesis of the solar industry. I think it is both maturing in terms of our businesses are getting more mature. We're thinking about how, literally how we take market share from established players. It's a very different con, um, conversation than how we sort of like like gnaw our way into a little corner of the world. But taking market share from established players is really different. But I also think we have this opportunity to define how we're going to think about diversity and equity and inclusion in our industry, how we're going to um, foster entrepreneurship and ownership of businesses by folks that perhaps have not historically had an opportunity to own businesses in the energy space. And all of that, A, I think is incredibly exciting, but B, I think, you know, especially people earlier in their careers have this amazing ability to impact what our industry looks like and what our culture is and how we define ourselves, right? And what our norms are. And so, um, yeah, I think we have to be really intentional about it, but I think we have a great opportunity to do it. And yeah, I think also being women in the industry, I think that it's more exciting to see and be, I've had the opportunity to speak with 
other women and hopefully speaking with more women on this podcast because I just think it's so important to kind of change the narrative just just a little bit um, <laughs> from the historical um, storyline. And I guess in terms of looking forward on a more hopeful note, just before we wrap up, we're clearly moving fast. And are we moving fast enough? Uh, We are clearly moving fast. I think we need to move even faster to reach the climate goals that the president has set out and more importantly to, you know, save our planet. Um, But I do think that there's lots of ways. It's not like it's not like a mystery what we have to do to go faster. It's pretty clear, right? We need stable policy. We need uh, a supply chain that is available to us. And we need processes that facilitate rather than hinder our rapid deployment. You know, we will solve the technology challenges. We will solve any pricing issues we have. We will solve uh, land use issues. Like we're smart, thoughtful people. We'll figure that part out. We just cannot have obstacles constantly being erected in our pathway that slow down our progress. So yes, we're moving fast. And yes, we need to move faster. Hopefully we can readjust those uh, those goals as well and bump them up. And I guess finally, um, what are you hoping for yourself in your role, in your career, um, and tying that into kind of the future of the industry and your role in it? Oh, well, I always told my friends that as soon as my, I have three children, and as soon as my children all go to college, which won't be for five more years, um, then I'll really get started on my career. <laughs> and they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> But I, so I feel very much like I'm just at the precipice of my own career as well. I mean, I, it, this is one of the reasons I chose to, to come fully into the solar industry and the solar and storage industry is because I feel like this is where the most rapid growth and innovation is. I think that uh, our businesses are entrepreneurial and, um, and adaptive in a way that I have not experienced that in some of the other industries I've been a part of. And so there is such clear public support and demand for the product we're offering. I think we have an incredible opportunity to shape the narrative and shape the workforce. We can be an example of how a new industry can embrace equity and embrace justice and embrace inclusion and continue to be intensely successful and, and profitable. Um, and so I am super excited about the future. I don't know exactly what my role will be once I get my career started, <laughs> but um, but I am incredibly happy to be exactly where awesome. I am today. Awesome. So thank you so much, Abby, for joining us on uh, Making Waves. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks, Nina. Now back to our conversation. You're listening to Horizons with me, Dr. Liz Dennett. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the difference between biodegradability and compostability. These are two terms I have heard frequently back and forth, and honestly, I'm a little confused. Lars Guy, can one of you break down the difference between the difference of something being biodegradable and compostable and why that makes a difference? Should I start? Obviously, because my former life, actually, I was working in the biodegradable business. So... Biodegradability is really something which is a function of a of, of, of a material. So like, think about wood. I mean, wood is something which is degrading simply. Uh, you put it into the soil. But then depending on the environment, wood can be lasting very long. There is these famous ships from the Vikings, uh, which have been surviving in the, in the, in the muddy uh, areas for thousands of years. Yeah, oh, well, thousands of years, maybe uh, not too many. So this is where wood is not degrading, obviously, although it is an environment where it should degrade or where, where biodegradation is happening. 
And um, this has nothing to do with the origin of the material. So there's plastics which are biodegradable, but there it depends very much on the on the environment, how they degrade and so on. So and, and very clearly, I mean, we Nestle, we don't we don't have a business in that. But there is applications where it does make sense to have biodegradability because you, you, it is an environment where it naturally would happen. And there's areas where it does not make sense. I think that's very clear. What we are interested more is reading the origin of the whole material. But that's a separate story. So biodegradability is something a, a product is, is really consumed by bacteria and fungi in the end. And, and it converts into, into something like compost uh, and into energy, but also CO2. And from a from a consumer perspective, it's that confusion you talk about, right? Is it, 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 it summons up the idea that you could just pop it into the garden with your with your grass cuttings and and, and your leftover food, and it will it will you know and two months later you'll have something nice you could put on your garden. But uh, you know, in in most cases, this, this, these biodegradable plastics we're talking about won't do that. They need to go to a specialist facility to be broken down with you know at the right temperatures with the right kind of bacterial environment to um, to help break them down. Yeah, I can share one example where it makes sense, maybe. I've been um, working in China for for my former company, and there we've been working on agricultural films. So uh, very often there's mulch films they're called, which are used for multiple reasons uh, to grow crops more efficiently. Let's say in areas where they could not be grown, and um, and there what you can see is simply that you can prevent really hefty littering. So specifically, China is producing more than more than 1.5 million tons of of uh, mulch film per year, and not all of that is collected, to say it very um, uh, conservatively. And, and you can see even at some stages that you see simply this, uh, this films being in the soil. And, and of course, they don't do good if they are really in the soil. And some of that also goes via the river to the ocean. So that's an area where it's very complicated. And it's not always possible to really simply collect it again. So there it does make sense to have it in biodegradable form because then it just can stay there and it will be becoming again something and we've we've been having experiments there where after a while actually uh, the statement by the biologists which were going with us were yes the earthworm is back so it was healing the soil even in that case so there is examples of that but elsewhere if it is not as you say it can never be seen as an excuse for littering or something that is absolutely plastic overall the carbon is a too um, valuable source to be littered in all senses. So we, we need to make it back into a circle that is about recycling and other measures to, to get it back into, into, into the material circle. So speaking of recycling, what part does that play? I mean, I, I like to think that rinsing all my plastics and putting them out with the trash every week does some good, but I know that from a materials and energy perspective, liberating that carbon once it's been locked into a piece of plastic can be very energy inefficient. If you allow me, I would, I would start a little bit on, on, on a higher level in, in, in that sense. So we always talk about uh, what is this fossil used for? And, and a majority for that, of that is used for transportation and for, for energy. And, and that is basically converting this fossil into CO2, one or the other way, nothing else. So it's, 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 it's a lost um, um, source in that sense. If we talk about materials, so that is polymers, chemicals, and other things like that, actually these are based on carbon. So while in, you can you can change to electrical vehicles, for example, yeah. Um, so that means you can in some areas live without a combustion engine. So you don't need fuel, fossil fuel specifically. You cannot do that for chemistry. Chemistry is built built on that. So what we touch every day is carbon, nothing else. 
So that means we do need carbon. Now the question is really what carbon source uh, does it come from? Although the topic is very complicated, actually it's very simple because the reason, the one reason for climate change is the use of fossil carbon, which has been in the ground before. It has been buried. It was dead, so to say, and we are bringing it back to life, if you like so. And now the carbon is there and it is burnt and that thereby we increase the climate um, crisis. So what we need to do is nothing else but changing the source and we need to keep the carbon circulating. And there's multiple ways to do so. One is this mechanical recycling you've been talking about, where you keep the polymer or the material more or less as it is, as good as you can. And that is something which you can do and is done, but it does have its limitations. There is possibilities to increase that and so on. We can talk about that, but it does have limitations. It's not the solution for everything. So in addition to that, although this should always be done on the first level if it's possible, in addition to that, you need other possibilities. There's things like chemical recycling, which, which also we are engaged in, which is in addition to that, to, to make the whole recycling circle a bit more efficient. But then also, ultimately, you can use bio-based sources where you basically use CO2 from the air, which is then captured into, into plants and then becomes materials and thereby it's in the circle. And something which is also interesting, though that is a third principal source of, of, of carbon, is actually um, if, you, if you capture CO2 directly from the air, or from a from a from a uh, industrial plant, and convert this and directly into chemicals. So it's more or less a competition. Are the plants more efficient in getting the CO2 out, or are human beings? Uh, I would dare to say currently it's still the plants which are winning over the human beings, uh, also with regards to cost. But this is a game which is open for the for the future, and we will see. So it's about the carbon source, and we need to have all the three circles. So getting carbon from the technosphere, that is recycling from the biosphere, which is from the plants, or from the atmosphere, which is this um, power to X, as you call it in the term. These are the three sources, and all of them will be needed. They are not competing technologies. These are helping each other, so to say. That's fascinating. And in all fairness, plants and the gene cassettes that are responsible for photosynthesis have had hundreds of millions, if not billions of years of a head start on us. So we can give, it, we can give them the win at this point in the game. <laughs> yeah, I think so, yeah. Guy, from your perspective, we, we talked about recycling. We talked a lot about kind of that full carbon cycle. Is, is there anything that you'd like to throw in or any other points you'd like to make here? I, I, I think that they are absolutely complementary and the right solution will vary entirely in the context of what, 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 what product or service you're trying to produce and where you're trying to produce it. You know, the, the cost structures of these things will change um, significantly around the world based on, on those factors. I, I think you know, if we focus on recycling, because that is if I focus on recycling, because that's the one that I think the most people are most familiar with, and it's it's the one that's got the the head start in the in the plastic sector, if you like. It's you know, it's, it's an established industry. Um, we all know what needs to be done. Um, as I said, actually, it's, it's it's a really quite simple thing. The the, the, the or really quite simple goal. The problem is that there are a lot of challenges, barriers in the way that we need to knock down to to make that easier to do because at the moment we are not recycling anything like the levels we should be doing we, we, we think it's it's something like 10 percent of plastic globally is recycled maybe, maybe a little bit more uh, in some of the key sectors and, and you know you need to push that number up very very significantly if we're going to create those renewable carbon loops that um a create the renewable carbon loops that Lars is talking about and b stop that material going into the oceans because if it's become another material it's not doing that so um, you know we need to we need to collect a lot more waste we need to 
significantly increase the cost structure, improve the cost structure of, uh, of of the recyclet, and we need to keep pushing through things that will increase the demand for it, so that you know, ultimately we're increasing the share of recyclets going into into um, in, in, into producing plastic materials. All right. So last question I have for my end is let's talk quickly about renewable alternative feedstocks. We mentioned that that's one of the key things that plastic producers are looking at. Um, I think I read in the report that 85% of base chemicals are produced by fossil fuel feedstocks, um, which requires ongoing extractions of the fossil fuels, which then can loop back, contributing to more greenhouse gas emissions. So how can we create a plastic supply chain that's carbon neutral or maybe even carbon negative using things like biofeedstocks, captured carbon, and low-carbon hydrogen? I think there's multiple approaches to that. Um, I would like to comment on what, what we are um, working on at Nesta. So we see from what I what I said earlier with regards to which carbon sources can be used, we see that all of them are necessary, but they are in different degrees of maturity from our point of view. So what we look at is we use bio-based as a as a biggest raw material, but we use it from from waste and residue sources. So that means we don't even because there's obviously always a topic about where does the biomass come from? And we are specifically searching for things like, for example, used cooking oil. So where this biomass had already a first life, if you like so. And then we use the waste and, and we, we, we then do our, our tricks to make it available then for the chemical industry again. And thereby we can really um, then, then um, feed in um, renewable resources. Um, that's number one. The other one is then that we think if you want to have that circle really circulating, so you should really try to keep the carbon in this loop. So that means you should try to do as much as possible mechanical recycling. If that doesn't work, the next best alternative from our point of view is then um, chemical recycling, where you basically go one step further back in the in the, in the material um, history, if you like so. So you don't stay on the polymer level, but you go one step be, um, below that. And thereby you can then close the loop. But whenever you have this complete circle of carbon, and um, you will always have a loss. There will always be some loss um, due to the process itself because it consumes some energy, some loss because not everything is collected, and some some need for extra carbon because uh, there's a growth, of course, in the industry. And that means that um, you will always have to feed in new carbon. And that, from our perspective, currently is best done by using waste and residue-based bio-based material. And in the future, we are working on other alternatives, power to X, like many other companies do as well. But we also look into that um, and um, see if we can can be better than the plants, if you like some. Um, or we try also to look into other alternatives like algae and so on. So there are a lot of technologies out there. Nobody can tell who will be winning, but we can tell what is the best solution now, at least from our point of view. I think, I think that's absolutely captured. We're, we're going to fail to disagree. I, I do apologize for that. The, um, perhaps, perhaps as a different perspective, um, I think those are exactly the right technology options that, that, that we should be looking at. From a scale of challenge perspective, maybe I can talk about it from, from, from that angle. You know, we, we're looking at sort of 85% of, of, of uh, chemicals, of plastics being produced from um, from fossil feedstocks today um, another 10 percent is coming from um, mechanical recycling basically so five percent is then from some sort of bio or renewable feedstock in our in, in scenario that we ran recently um, we we managed to get that up to about 25 26 percent um, by the end of the 
uh, by, by the end of the, the forecast period, which is 2050. Um, how do we do that? Um, we, we use carbon taxes. And that really, I think, is the, the key thing here. Um, we've touched on it earlier on, but the externalities um, in, in the industry need to be internalized in some way, shape or form if these new technologies are going to become cost competitive to the point that they can really scale um, and compete against the huge commodity petrochemically derived plastics that we have today. Lars, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can listeners learn more about what you and Nest are doing for renewable solutions, including in the polymers and chemicals industries? Well, let's first of all, and, and thank you very much for this talk. It was very nice, really. And I didn't realize that the time is over already. Well, they can uh, find it obviously on nestle.com. So N-E-S-T-E. Don't mix it up with Nestle. This is a coffee making company. We respect them, but we are Nestle. So nestle.com, you will find it. And if you search for Nestle Re, which is our brand, you will also find all the information on what we do in the renewable polymers and chemicals space. Otherwise, you can also, of course, get connected uh, with me or my colleagues on LinkedIn or elsewhere. Awesome. I am absolutely doing that. Uh, Guy, it has also been truly a pleasure. Where can listeners learn more about the work Woodmac has done on plastics and some of the chemical markets research? Yeah, again, woodmac.com is probably the best. And indeed, if you add forward slash horizons to the end of that, you'll get to see our, our most recent piece that we put out called Plastic Surgery, which which looks at these uh, these issues across the full life cycle um, and thinks a bit about what the industry needs to do to, to, to make progress in its journey to a more sustainable endpoint. for an industry that continues to feed the planet a junk food diet is not attractive. We need to clear the plastic from the arteries of the earth. Plastic producers, converters, consumer-facing companies, and waste producers must step up and take ownership of their environmental impacts. There are three interventions that could be used to solve this problem. One, demand. We apply a framework for reducing demand in sectors using fast-moving plastic, such as retail, hospitality, and apparel. We assume that current initiatives to reduce demand, such as loop for packaging and depop or thread up for apparel, take an even bigger market share. Two, end of life. We apply a rising carbon tax throughout the value chain, increasing the relative attractiveness of recycled plastics over virgin applications. This drives investment into greater collection and recycling capacity. Three, feedstock collection. We apply a rising carbon tax to feedstock sources, making plastic to feedstock, biofeedstock, waste of chemicals and low carbon hydrogen more attractive than fossil fuel derived feedstocks and gas derived feedstocks more attractive than oil and coal. This industry needs to make transformative change across the entire chain, from feedstocks to how and where we consume plastics to how we manage them after use. Failure to act could cost the sector the support of stakeholders, including capital markets, maybe even the social license to operate. The plastic industry needs surgery, and it is time to go under the knife. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Horizons. I'm Dr. Liz Dennett, and we'll see you on the next episode. As always, we'll leave you with the final word from our chief research analyst, Simon Flowers. We can't live without plastic. And if we're going to live with it, we have to face up to the challenges plastic presents. First, we need lower carbon feedstocks. Second, we need to change the way we consume plastics. And thirdly, we need to deal with plastics once we've used it. And that means a lot more recycling than we have today. 
We need all of those things if we're going to meet our net zero goals. And companies in the plastic industry have to get on top of plastics if they're to remain sustainable and they are to meet the sustainability goals of their investors and other stakeholders. So that's it for 2021 podcast from Horizons. Coming up in January, we're going to be looking at the huge investment in the energy transition. Which countries and which sectors are going to do best from that investment and which may be laggards? So look out for our next Horizons podcast coming up in January.